Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Pastor John, and I'm glad that you've joined us here in worship today. In case you're not aware, uh, the magazine Time every year puts out their Person of the Year, which is a person that they, uh, the editors or whoever there judges to have been as extraordinary impact in the previous year. And if you uh, weren't aware, the person of the year from 2023 was Taylor Swift. And the reason it was Taylor Swift is because she had a sold-out concert tour, a concert film that did extremely well. She was also uh, well-seen, represented in uh, NFL games because of her dating life, and, and much more. And when I saw this, I had a conversation with my wife about it, and she said, you know, I don't know if I know any Taylor Swift songs. And I said, surely you've heard uh, some of her songs. And so I ran through some, particularly that were older. Now, let me be clear here. I'm, I'm not a Swifty or anything like that. It's just <laughs> the, the songs are known and around. Uh, and so I listed off a couple, you know, and we played a little bit. And by the chorus, she was like, okay, I've heard those, stuff like... Uh, Shake It Off, or Teardrops on My Guitar, or You Belong With Me, uh, which is a song about an unpopular girl singing to the popular boy that you belong with me. She claims she, that I, I'm close with you. We have an intimate, close relationship. We should be together. You belong with me. And today we're talking about kind of God saying the same thing, but he has much more authority behind it than Taylor Swift does. He speaks to us, you belong with me. He's calling his people to escape to his presence. He wants to bring the people of Israel out of slavery into a relationship with him. He says to them, you belong with me. But practically speaking, what, what does that mean? What does it look like? What does it mean to belong to God? And why would we want that? You may be here this morning saying, why would I want to belong to God? That sounds really limiting. What's the benefit of that? What do we get if we belong to God? Is there something I have to do then? Are there some expectations he places on me if I belong to him? Well, our passage today, which is Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 through 31, we've been following a man named Moses, and he's going to begin a journey back to Egypt. God has just spoken to him from a burning bush and has called, commissioned him, given him a mission to go and declare to the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, let my people, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, go, and Moses will lead them out of slavery. But as he takes this journey back to Egypt, Moses is going to learn about belonging to God. He's going to learn that belonging to God means that God is in control of our lives, and it also means that God defends his children. But if we belong to God, what does he call us to do in response? Well, he calls us to obey him and to worship him. That's what Moses will discover, so let's take a look at it for ourselves. If you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 4. So that's Exodus, big four, little verse 18. You can use the blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take that one with you when you go. So you can find it there. I believe the page number um, should be... Uh, actually, I don't know off the top of my head. Does somebody have it right there? If you're using the blue one, you can shout it out. 56, I heard there. Thank you. Um, so you can find it there, or we'll also have it up on the screen. And once you are there, I'd ask that if you are able, you please stand to honor the reading of God's word, and then follow along. I'm going to read our passage for today. This is Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 18. 
Verse 18 says that Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, and they went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The next couple of verses are a little odd episode, but we'll talk about it when we get to it. Verse 24 says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, touched Moses' feet with it, and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Verse 27, The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the Israels, all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. Verse 31, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads in worship. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God, we thank you that you've communicated your truth to us, that you desire a relationship with us. You want us to belong to you. Thank you, God, for the joyful news that that means, that means that you are in control of all things, that you're always in control of all things, but if we know you, God, we get to enjoy that. Thank you, God, that not only do you control all things, but you particularly defend your children, those who know you. Thank you, God, for the joy of knowing you. And we know that's only possible through your son, Jesus. I pray, God, that knowing you, belonging to you, would lead us to respond by doing what you have said and by worshiping you, giving you the praise, the honor, the fame, the recognition that you deserve. So, God, as we look at this word today, May we see what it means to belong to you. May we rejoice that Jesus has made that possible. May we respond with obedience and worship because you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to walk through these verses and we're going to talk about what belonging to God means. And the first aspect of belonging to God that this passage draws out is that he is in control. God is in control. He's in control of everything, but especially he's in control of our lives. Last week, we were talking about a conversation God was having with Moses at the burning bush. 
And now Moses is going to act on what God has said. He's going to see God's control in action. He's going to see all these circumstances that come together to demonstrate that God is the one who has the power here, who's in control. At this point, though, Moses is far away from his people who are in Egypt. He's in the land of Midian, and his father-in-law is a man named Jethro, and he's still subject to his father-in-law. So he honors his authority, and he asks, he requests, can I go back to Egypt? And so why is he asking? Well, he's respecting the authority. He's also going to bring his wife and kids with him. So he's saying, can my family move? Can we go back to Egypt? And God grants Moses favor. Jethro gives his blessing. Jethro says to Moses, go in peace. And so Moses is ready then. Yet, Moses is perhaps a little nervous, and God knows this, so he takes an extra step to encourage him that it is okay for him to go. And the reason he did this is because if you remember earlier in the book, or if you weren't here, let me bring you up to speed, when Moses was still in Egypt, he tried to start a revolution, start a movement by killing an Egyptian that was uh, hurting one of his fellow Hebrew slaves. Now, that, that movement didn't happen, and instead, Moses became a wanted man. He was wanted for that murder, so he became a fugitive. He had to run, and so he ran, but it's been 40 years, and God says in verse 19, go back to Egypt, all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Enough time had passed, the crime had been forgotten. The old Pharaoh was gone, God reassures him, it's time for you to go back to Egypt. God is in control and he guides and reassures his people. For Moses, he just spoke to him. For us, we have God's word to us right here in the Bible. We want reassurance from God. He's given us his promise. He's spoken to us in his word. So Moses is encouraged. He puts his family on some donkeys. They start to journey the journey to Egypt. There's a little episode with his family that we'll read today in our passage. Then we don't hear from them again until much later in the book. So it seems at some point he then decides to send them back to his father-in-law, I guess for their safety for a little bit. But for right now, they're traveling with him. The family of God is together with their family-driven faith, the whole family following him. And we're also told in verse 20 that he takes the staff. Um, It says the staff of God in his hand. If you were here last week and the week before, we talked about God telling him, Moses, you're going to do some miracles, some wonders, some things to show that I am with you. And part of that involved using his own walking stick, his staff. There was nothing special about it except that God was going to use it. It was a symbol of God's authority, his presence and power. And Moses is obeying God, taking it. He's expecting to be used by him. He sees God's control and he's going to act. He knows he's been commissioned to give a message. He's been a witness of a good message to share with his people. If we know God today, we've also been witnesses of a good message, that Christ has died for us. That is the message we are to share. We're to share that good news of salvation with others. Acts 5.32 says, we are witnesses to these things. So is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And then there's one more powerful promise God makes about his control over the circumstances in Moses' life, and that's in verse 21. God's reminding Moses that he's to go before Pharaoh. He's been empowered to do miracles and wonders. But then there's a phrase that pops up that we'll see a lot in the next chapters 
in the book of Exodus. It's this phrase here, let me read it. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart. I will make Pharaoh stubborn so that he will not let the people go. This is the first time that phrase shows up in Exodus. It will show up at least 18 more times in various forms in the book. And the main point of that phrase is God setting up this conflict that's going to happen in the next few chapters. On the one hand, we have Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time. On the other, time we, other side, we have the holy, all-powerful God. Pharaoh will be a foil and antagonist to demonstrate God's power. And when he says the heart, he's speaking to the center of his being. We know in our modern mind, the heart is the blood pumping organ. But in the ancient world and the time the Bible was written, they used heart to refer to your intellect, your will, your emotions. And we do the same thing. We might tell somebody, I love you with all my heart. And we don't mean the organ. We understand with everything I am. And so Pharaoh's heart is acting contrary to God. And God's going to harden it. He's opposed to God. And I, and I want to spend a moment here. I don't want to get lost on this phrase, but sometimes I, I've heard a very overly simplistic explanation of this. And that overly simplistic way is that, well, God said to let people go. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. He decided not to, and he kept on doing that, and eventually God hardened him and, and let him stay in that. Uh, I think that's overly simplistic because that's not what it says here. This is the first time it shows up and God says he's actively going to do something. He says, I will harden his heart. Why would God do this to Pharaoh? I think there's a couple reasons here. One is if Moses went and said, let my people go and Pharaoh said, okay, then Pharaoh could make the argument, I'm the deliverer of the people of Israel because I was asked and I let them go. And instead, There'll be chapters and chapters that will make it clear that God is the one rescuing his people. God's the one who needs to get the credit and the glory. And Moses and the Israelites learn that this is a God who rescues. That could be one reason. Another reason could be the pharaohs at that time were believed to be gods. They thought of themselves as gods of Egypt worthy of worship. But the one true God is saying, this so-called God is nothing next to me. I can control his very heart. It could also be that God always does what is right, and he needs to bring his justice, his full justice to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for their years of cruel slavery. But whatever the reason is, God has this control. He's in control of all things. We see an example of this in the book of Daniel. This is actually a pagan king saying this. This isn't somebody who worships God, but this pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, recognizes that the one true God has a dominion that is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay or stop his hand. No one can say to him, to God, what have you done? God is in control. And he tells us in our passage that he can and he does harden hearts. 
Now, we might want to push against that so that it sounds unfair to us, but God's so much greater than us. And the reason he says that in our passage is not for us to get lost in debates about what does this mean, what does it not mean. That's not it. It's supposed to be an encouragement to Moses. That's who he's talking to. He's telling Moses, you're going to go to Egypt, and you're going to tell the most powerful man in the world to let his workforce go for nothing. And what I'm going to do is I'll be in control. And if he says, no, I'm in control of that. I'm in control of his heart. I'm directing everything for my purpose. Even Pharaoh saying no is still God being in control and over that. From his perspective, Pharaoh was making his own voluntary choice. He was saying, no, I'm not going to let them go. But that very decision was not outside of God's sovereign, absolute power. One pastor I was reading, Jay Schuyler, said, when the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, he's not making a good heart bad. That's when we read that. It's not that, oh, Pharaoh's a nice guy and God twisted it. No, the wickedness of Pharaoh's heart is already clear. He's confirming Pharaoh in his rebellion. Pharaoh is responsible for his actions, but God is sovereign over everything, even Pharaoh's heart. And the point, again, is supposed to be encouragement. God is saving his people. And he does it even by controlling their enemies. God is in control of human hearts. The Apostle Paul would say in the book of Romans that then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. And you will say to me then, well, if he does that, if he hardens, then why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? This idea of God hardening is not something we're supposed to get lost in, disturbed by. It's not something we're supposed to debate about. It's supposed to be something freeing, something good, encouraging. It means God is in control. We never get outside of his control, his power. Instead of debating what it means, it should lead us to turn toward this God. There's one passage I came across that I think illustrates this well. It's actually God's people speaking about this. Isaiah is a prophet. He's speaking on behalf of God's people. And look what he says. He says, oh, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? Why do you, God, harden our hearts so that we do not fear you, we do not worship you? And he doesn't get lost in that. He turns it into a prayer. He says, God, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. He's saying, God, I feel like our hearts are hardened. We're not seeking after you. So that's, instead of being angry about that, I'm going to pray to seek you, God, that you may know us and you may rescue us. He realizes it's only by God's grace that we can escape our own hard hearts. It's only by God's grace we're not hardened too. Reading about this is a call to us to trust in that God. Not debate what does this mean, what does it doesn't mean, but to say this is a great God who can do that. We need to trust and know him. Trust that he is in control, that no one is outside of his loving reign and rule. When life's hard, when things are difficult, it's a challenge to remember this God is in control. That difficult family situation that you may be dealing with, that uh, really tough work assignment at school, that, that challenge at your work, your place of employment, those responsibilities that seem overwhelming, Remind us that God controls hearts. He is in control of your situation, of my situation. 
he knows and he cares. We belong to God. We can rejoice in the fact that he is in control. But since he's in control, it's not just he's in control of all things, but how does that particularly benefit us? Well, if we belong to God, it means that he defends his children. He's not only in control of everything, but he particularly defends, stands up for, cares for his children, his people. In our passage, it's God giving more instruction to Moses. He says, Moses, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the one true Lord of the universe is on his people's side, not your side, Pharaoh. And the good news for us is we can be on God's side. The way that happens is if we know God through Jesus Christ, then we're a part of his people too. So let's look at the text. Uh, God speaking to Moses says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. This people I consider to be my firstborn son. And this is the first time in the Bible God calls his people his son. He's saying that they are my family, not by their birth, not by their ethnicity, but by my choice, God's choice. They're not entitled to it, but I, God, view them as my firstborn son. And this day, that meant the one who gets the benefits of the inheritance. God's saying, I look at these people and I am going to give them my inheritance, my gracious gift. More than that, it means God's saying, I have adopted this people as my own. I have chosen to love them. I have chosen them to represent me. Moses will talk about this later in the book of Deuteronomy. He says to them, you are the sons of the Lord your God, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I'm saying I'm going to save my people from slavery. I'm going to bring them into a special family relationship with me. And so what is he then going to do for these people? He calls his family. Verse 23, Moses is then to say to Pharaoh, let my son go, the people of Israel go, that he may serve and worship me. He wants people to leave serving Pharaoh in slavery and instead serve and worship him. But then he says, I defend my children, and there's consequences if you oppress or harm them. He says, if you refuse to let my son go, then I will kill your firstborn son. And that's exactly what happens. We'll see in chapter 12, the very last plague at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. God protects his own. He keeps his children safe. When we get there, we'll see that he does it through a blood of of the lamb. But God defends his children from their enemies. And the reason I'm highlighting this is because if you know God, if you have a relationship with him, then you are a son, a child of God. He has brought you into his family. He says in the book of Ephesians that in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. We become sons, children of God through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. You're brought into God's family. You weren't born in it. 
You don't earn it for yourself. It's accomplished through Jesus who came to earth, lived for us, died to pay for our sin and rose to life to bring us into that family. And it becomes yours if you receive, if you know, if you trust in Jesus. We read in the Gospel of John about Jesus that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, we could say, my mind would be to become saved. He gave them the right to go to heaven. Yes, but that's not what John writes. He says he gave them the right to become children of God. They were born not of of blood or of the will of the flesh or the will of man. They were born of God. They have become children of God. That's what it means to belong to God, to be his child. He defends who he protects. I'm sure you've seen a parent, if a child's about to run out in the road, who puts their hand and stops them, who holds their child when, uh, when they're afraid. God defends his children. You can belong to God today through Christ. You can know the benefits of his control, his defense, his rescue. If you become a part of his people, the book of Hebrews speaks to it. It says you then have come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and a festival, a party gathering, because you have come to the assembly, the gathering of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And you also come to God, the judge of all. Come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You've come to Jesus, who's the mediator, our representative of a new covenant, a new relationship with God. This is what it means to belong to God. He's in control of all things, but he can not only be in control, he can particularly take care of and defend you. And the way you know that is not by earning something from him. It's not some actions you need to take. It's turning away from your sin and trusting in Jesus. My prayer is that if you don't, you would know him today, that you would belong to God. If you don't know what that means, then then, uh, we have a longer service, but, but talk to me afterwards or talk to someone about how can I know God, have a relationship with him. Pray, you, you pray, ask God to know him. Pray, God, I want to turn away from my sin. I want to trust in you. I want to know you. I want my life to be about you. I pray that you would know God and belong to him. But is that all that life's about then? Will we know God and then, then we just coast the rest of the way? Okay, God is in control. He defends us. But what are we supposed to do? Well, of course, first it's turning from sin, trusting in Jesus. But if we've done that, what does he expect from his people? What does he expect of his children that he is defending? Well, that's what we'll see in the rest of our passage. If we belong to God, belonging to God means that we respond with two things we see. First, with obedience, with obedience. If we know God, he expects us to obey him, obedience. Moses nearly learns this lesson the hard way. He and his family are beginning their journey back to Egypt, and danger strikes from an unexpected source. They come to a lodging place, an encampment, and verse 24 tells us that the Lord met him, and he sought, he seeks to put him to death. We're not given a lot of details here, but somehow God is threatening Moses and his family's lives. 
Now, these three little verses are a great mystery to people, and it's one of those really confusing passages in Scripture. It's one probably many people going through Exodus skip over. No representation I've seen ever takes time to do this little episode here. Um, And I'll admit, it's a mystery, the passage. You can see many different interpretations, many different perspectives and views on it. Perhaps what happens here is the angel of the Lord appears with a sword or something and is threatening Moses, or uh, one scholar I read suggested maybe Moses all of a sudden got a seizure or a serious illness that, that they understood was coming from God. But we don't really know for sure. And we're not even 100% positive why this is happening. The text doesn't say, but let me give you the explanation that made the most sense to me. It seems that God is remembering what he has said to his people. And long before Moses, God made a covenant, an agreement with Moses' people. And that covenant, that agreement was that the men, the males of the people of Israel are supposed to be circumcised. We can see this way back in Genesis chapter 17, the very first book in the Bible. There God is speaking to Abraham and God says to him, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. Why? Because it's a sign of the covenant between me and you. And then a couple verses later, he says, any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And it seems that in this moment, Moses had not circumcised, at least one, if not both, of his sons. And God's anger here, the implication seems to be Moses knew that he was supposed to do it, and he chose to ignore this command for God's people. Again, there's a lot of things we don't know. Why did he choose to ignore it? Maybe because he was living far away from his people, wanted to to fit in more. We don't really know. But why is this a problem? It's a problem because this was the Old Testament sign or seal that you were a part of God's people. And Moses needs to dedicate his family to God. If he doesn't do it, this passage says he risked being cut off from the people of God. When he's disobeying God, it's a kind of practical atheism. He's saying, God, I know that you have said something you want. I know your character, your love. You've given commands. You're going to rescue our people. But the other things you say don't matter to me. But God takes it very seriously. Perhaps it's tied to uh, the Passover. He spoke in the, the verse before this. Remember, he said to Pharaoh that, You're to tell Pharaoh that if you don't let the people of Israel go, that his firstborn son shall die. Maybe it's tied in to that plague, that Moses and his family are not exempt from the need to obey God. Two scholars wrote this, Moses has neglected God's commandment. He now stands outside the mark of sonship, the mark of being a part of God's children. He's now under the same judgment as Pharaoh. And this is a problem. God's called Moses to be the leader of his people, and there's an offense against God that's that's at the heart of his family. He can't really enter God's service if he's actively rebelling against him, ignoring his commands. And here we, I think we see God's holiness, that God's not a respecter of persons. He didn't choose to use Moses. He didn't choose to save the Israelites because they were better than everybody else, but he chose to love them. 
Another pastor, Tony Morita, puts it this way. He says, we are only right with God through blood and his covenant promises. Apart from the shedding of blood, Moses was no different from the Egyptians. Likewise, as Christians, we know that apart from blood and a new heart, the Bible will call it a circumcision of the heart, we are no different from unbelievers. I think this is actually a good thing to have this before we get to these passages of all these plagues on Egypt. Because you could read that as Moses and his people, they're the best, they're awesome, and all these terrible things happen to Pharaoh. But God's saying, no, I expect my people to know and follow me. I hold them accountable for it. And then when we enter the plagues, we see he's holding the Egyptians accountable for their actions as well. If Moses' family had failed to obey God, it would have weakened his message. So this is the problem, but uh, fortunately for this situation, Moses' faithful wife, Zipporah, springs into action, as if we're honest, faithful women often do when men stumble and are unsure of where to go forward. So she jumps into action. She circumcises her son right there, and then says she touches, covers Moses' feet, could be his feet, it could be talking about the male sexual organ, but regardless, it, it's something uh, tied in saying that Moses' action is happening here. Zipporah is the one doing it. It's normally supposed to be the father who does it, but whatever reason, she's the one who steps in. She's the one who acts faithfully, which I think that's remarkable because she wasn't born into the people of God. Mo- Moses was. She wasn't. She was uh, in the land of Midian. She married in but she has embraced this relationship with God. She knows what to do, and she does it. She's from a different race or culture, but they've been joined together under God, uh, which in um, our Southern Baptist Convention, this Sunday is called Racial Reconciliation Sunday. So here we see two people, two different races, ethnic backgrounds who've come together, and this faithful wife is uh, leading the way in this moment. The act of touching Moses ties him to the act, that the shed blood is covering him too, and that saves his life. And so then she gives a greeting, an exclamation, surely you are a bridegroom, a husband of blood to me. Maybe that was part of the ritual. Maybe she's just grateful. Maybe she realizes that the danger is past. And she says, Moses, I thought you were going to die, but you're alive. It makes me feel like our wedding day because you're my bridegroom. Regardless of what it is after that, verse 26 says, God the Lord leaves Moses alone. He withdrew the threat, the danger is past. And once again, we see Moses has been saved. His life has been saved by faithful women. At this point in the story, Moses has really not saved anyone <laughs> at this point. I guess he rescued his wife and, and her sisters from some people who were taking over their well. Uh, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. But instead, Moses has been saved by faithful midwives, Pharaoh told those who were giving, helping the women give birth to kill the male children, and they said no. His life was saved there. His life was saved by his mother, who tried to protect her son, by his sister, who watched over him, by Pharaoh's daughter, who decided to spare him, and now his own wife is sparing him. These faithful women are taking godly initiative to save lives and honor the Lord. Maybe what's happening here is a foreshadowing of, again, that Passover. At Passover, God's going to send, uh, it doesn't say angel of death, but it's basically that. He's going to kill the firstborn in the land of Egypt, but his people are safe because they take the blood of the lamb, a lamb and they put it on their doorpost, and that lamb's blood covers and saves them. 
One scholar, Terence Fretheim, I'm going to kind of jump in the middle of this quote. He says, however much Moses reaches heroic stature in his later activity, he himself is shown here right before he embarks on his mission to be vulnerable. He is in need of a mediator in his relationship with God. He needed somebody to step in between him and God. In this moment, it was his wife, Zipporah. We know the one who stands between us and God is Jesus Christ. But for our purposes, I want to focus on kind of the larger picture here. Moses knew there was something he was supposed to do, and he didn't do it, and God says that's a serious problem. There's a powerful lesson that God expects his people to obey. He holds them accountable to obey. And maybe this little incident will explain some of what we see in the book. When we get to that Passover, that's chapters 12 and 13, Moses spends like two chapters talking about the very specific rules about how you're supposed to do Passover. When we get later in the book, there will be a long list of laws. Then there will be chapter after chapter of exact requirements for building a tabernacle, a place to worship God. We may wonder, why would he do it? Well, maybe it's because right here he learned it's really important to obey what God has said, and he wants to make sure that his people do it. The next few verses are just some more examples of obedience that kind of move the story along. It takes what probably happened over the course of weeks or months and jams it in just a few verses. God had promised Moses that he would send his brother Aaron to help, and so the Lord speaks to Aaron, tells him, go meet Moses so you can encourage him and assist him. Maybe it was the first time Aaron had even heard Moses was still alive, so he goes, he meets him, gives him a greeting, a kiss. They're excited to be for, together. After four, they probably haven't seen each other in over 40 years, and so they're rejoicing to be together, and God's beginning to fulfill his promises. Then, verse 28, Moses tells Aaron everything the Lord has said, all that he's supposed to speak and all the signs that he's supposed to do. And so Moses and Aaron, they gather together, the elders and the leaders, the people of Israel, in verse 29, and Aaron tells them what God has said. The, the signs are performed before them, and the point is Moses has learned. He's learned to obey God and to do what he says. So let's talk about this obedience for us, though, for a minute here. Well, what's the application here, Pastor? Are you telling us we need to make sure children are circumcised a certain way? No, no, no not that. And we're not going to take time to look at it today, but the New Testament makes it clear that that's not how we apply this. But I think the larger principle is that if we belong to God, he expects us to obey him. I like this Pastor Alec Motyer. He said, the Lord treats obedience with a seriousness that is in marked contrast, very different to our often casual and self-excusing ways. God often commands and we give excuses about it. Or we ask for exceptions. We'd say, well, you know, God, I, you don't really understand what I was going through in that moment. You don't understand my situation. We give excuses, but God treats obedience seriously. He does not suffer fools lightly. He has told us in his word what he wants but we are to obey. In the New Testament, uh, James says, don't just listen to God's word, you must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. So this is a part where it's difficult for me to make specific application. I can try to be general here, but think about it. Is there a part of God's word, something in God's word that, that you know it's what God says, but you're ignoring that? 
or you're downplaying that part. You're not treating it seriously. Maybe you know you shouldn't say that thing to that person, but you feel like you can't help yourself from doing it. You, you know you shouldn't treat somebody a, a certain way, but you try to make excuses about it. You feel convicted that you shouldn't watch that thing or, or spend time with those friends that are a bad influence, but God expects obedience from his people. Maybe there's something you like to indulge in, but you, you know that God says that's not something to engage in. Or perhaps you're overindulging in something good. God calls for obedience. Let the warning he gives to Moses be your warning too. Belonging to God means that we obey him. Yet, our text gives us one more response that we have if we obey God, kind of more of the, it's not really positive, negative, but the joyful side of it. Belonging to God also means that we respond with worship, with worship. God had promised Moses, if you remember the the passage that that I spoke on, and then last week Elder Tom spoke about it, that Moses was like, what if they don't listen to me? What if they don't listen to what I, I say? What if they don't believe me? Well, look at verse 31, it says, the people believed, believed. All that worrying Moses had, the people believed. They listened to him, they believed that God had spoken, they trusted that he would deliver him. And they're particularly encouraged, it says, when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction. They're so encouraged, God's seen what we're going through, our struggle, our affliction, our misery. Moses' words through Aaron convinced them God is coming to save us. They rejoiced. God has said he's going to visit us. He's concerned about us. Uh, Back in chapter 3, God himself said these things. The Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. I'm going to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God was going to take the time to get involved with his people, to rescue them. And that's a cause for rejoicing. They're so glad to hear God is visiting them, is going to save them. We can even see this in the New Testament. A man named Zechariah, just before Jesus is born, knows it's about to happen. And in Luke 1, 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, if you know the story of Exodus, this belief that this joy they have, it's not going to last. Things are going to go go wrong, in fact, next week. Uh, But for this moment, they respond appropriately. Our text says that they bowed their heads and they worshiped God. Even before they're free, they know this God is worthy of worship. He's worthy of being praised, of gratitude and affection. And what I love about this is uh, when Moses came Aaron spoke and gave them a message and then did some signs. And I would expect it to be, read when the people saw the signs, they believed and they rejoiced. But it makes it clear that what they rejoiced in more was what they heard. They heard that this God does love them, that he cares, and he is coming. They're motivated by his promises, the good news more than signs. And I think that's a challenge for us as well. Are we motivated by God's good news to praise him? When he works on our behalf, do we respond in worship? 
That's our actions. Do we live for God? But it's also our words we give him. Do we express our gratitude in prayer? Do we sing our praise to him? The reason we spend the whole first half of our service singing those songs is we're worshiping him. We're praising him for what he has done. The reason we end our service, I, I always say that, you know, he is worthy. He's worthy of worship. Then we sing. We respond to God by worshiping him. It's the action that he calls for. We'll also worship him immediately after we sing. We'll participate in the Lord's Supper. That's another way to, to worship him, to honor him for what he has done. We should worship him because we belong to God. He's the one who is in control. He's the one who defends us. So if we know him, let's obey him. If we know him, let's bow our heads and worship because he alone is worthy.